as we've said a number of times, the Buddha said he taught, he teaches only suffering and the end of suffering. We spent a lot of time talking about the suffering part, exploring how to work with it, how to open to it, how to meet it, how to understand it really, the first noble truth, foundational teachings of the Buddha. He encouraged us to understand suffering. And tonight I'd like to look at the other side a little bit, the possibility of the end of suffering. In the context of the Four Noble Truths, the truth of suffering, the truth of the origin of suffering, the truth of the ending of suffering, and the truth of the path, the way leading to the ending of suffering. I sometimes think of the first two Noble Truths, the first and second Noble Truths, as being a description of our usual lives, how we get caught in the cycle of wanting and suffering. There's the truth of the origin of suffering, the cause, the craving, the wanting, and the suffering itself. In some ways we can look at the second noble truth being the conditions for the first noble truth. It's sometimes said of the second noble truth that the arising of craving is the arising of suffering. And so that's the condition. That's the condition for suffering to arise. And so we see this dependency or this conditionality between these two truths. And these two truths is talking about the dependent origination, which we explored a little bit last week, as a description of this cycle of wanting and suffering and wanting and suffering and how it perpetuates itself In a way, these first two noble truths just toggle back and forth, indicating this this cycle. The third and fourth noble truths are a description of the possibility for ending this cycle. The fourth noble truth is that there is a path that leads to the ending of suffering the third noble truth. So again, the, the fourth noble truth in this case describes the conditions that create the possibility for the third noble truth, the freedom from suffering. We cultivate the path and it creates the conditions for freedom. So this is the, the way out, the possibility for being released from the cycle described by the first two noble truths. And yet there's another way of understanding these four noble truths also, the Buddha associated actions with each of these truths, turning them into practices really, instead of being descriptions of the conditions of our life and descriptions of how the Uh, that pattern can change. They become actions, things that we explore directly, 
as I said a few minutes ago, the action associated with the first noble truth is to understand suffering. Understand in the way that we've been practicing for these last weeks and months. Exploring the experience. Not thinking about it, not trying to figure out why it's happening in our usual way of thinking back about, well, I did this and that person did that and, and then this is what happened. But more, what is the experience? What is the experience of frustration, of anger, of pride, of greed, of confusion? That's the understanding the Buddha enjoined us to undertake with respect to suffering. The second noble truth the action associated with the second noble truth is abandoning the cause of suffering, abandoning the arising of suffering, abandoning the craving that leads to the arising of suffering. In my own experience around this abandoning Sometimes, sometimes there are occasional times when I can kind of recognize, oh, the mind is headed in a certain direction and that's not helpful. Let me see if I can redirect or let go of that. That direction, that inclination, that movement. And yet what I see most of the time is that the letting go, the abandoning, we can think of the abandoning as being something that happens naturally when suffering has been understood. The deep connection with suffering leads to the understanding which creates the conditions for the mind to simply recognize this is not helpful. The mind abandons the craving. Wisdom has been cultivated and wisdom abandons the craving. The, the definition of abandon, actually, I looked this up just to get some kind of inspiration at one point when I was offering a talk on this second noble truth and abandoning suffering, abandoning craving, abandoning the second noble truth. And it, it indicated that abandoning is something that happens when you understand you're in a place of danger. So for instance, the term abandon ship is to leave that ship because it's going down. You know, it's not, it's not like you want to hold on to it because holding on to it means being pulled under. And so abandoning comes about through understanding the consequences of holding on to something. This is not helpful. And so there's a kind of a natural abandoning that happens around craving as we understand suffering. So that's the second noble truth in the action. First noble truth, understand suffering. Second noble truth, abandon or let go of the cause of suffering. The third noble truth The action is realize the freedom from suffering. 
And again, to me, this follows very naturally from these first two noble truths. We understand suffering through that understanding the mind lets go of the craving and through that letting go realizes the ending of suffering. So in some ways I feel like the Buddha laid out a path, a practice for us in associating these actions with the noble truths and pointing out that most of our work is in the understanding of suffering, which is done through cultivating the fourth noble truth, the path, the eightfold path leading to the end of suffering. We can think of the eightfold path as being those tools, wise view, wise intention, wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood, wise effort, wise mindfulness, wise concentration are the tools that allow us to understand suffering. And so the Four Noble Truths kind of have a cycle in them. We cultivate the Fourth Noble Truth in in order to understand suffering, leading to the release, leading to the letting go of craving leading to the realization of release. And so this release, release, Nibbana, the term in Pali for this ending of suffering, the Pali term I understand means something like to cool or to go out. Like, I think, I think that um, the word in um, Pali would have been used to describe if you had like a warm meal sitting on the table, that it's cooling you know, as it sits on the table, that this is the word. It's, it's nibbana-ing. <laughs> so it's a kind of everyday word in Pali. And yet we create these exalted words for it, you know. Enlightenment. And so it's really, it's a cooling, it's a release. Primarily, it's described in the suttas, by what it is not. It's non-clinging. The ending of craving. The absence of greed, aversion, delusion. It's not described in terms of what we get, what we attain, what we accumulate. It's not described by what kind of person we become. There are some, um, you know, in terms of the things that we do, there are some descriptions of a person who is free, but largely these descriptions, again, are in terms of what they don't do. They are not killing. They are not stealing. They are not holding on to things. They are not craving. And so the description of someone who's enlightened is a description of someone who has let go. I'm going to read you some 
descriptions from the suttas about this. These are not from one sutta, but I kind of like the way these flowed together, so I'll read it as if it's one. The extinction of greed, the extinction of hate, the extinction of delusion. This indeed is called Nibbana. Enraptured with lust, enraged with anger, blinded by delusion, overwhelmed, with mind ensnared, one aims at one's own ruin, at the ruin of others, at the ruin of both, and experiences mental pain and grief. But if lust, anger, and delusion are given up, one aims neither at one's own ruin, nor at the ruin of others, nor at the ruin of both, and experiences no mental pain and grief. This is Nibbana, immediate, visible in this life, inviting, attractive, and comprehensible to the wise. And for a disciple thus freed, in whose heart dwells peace, there is nothing to be added to what has been done, and nothing remains to be done. Just as a rock of one solid mass remains unshaken by the wind, even so neither forms, nor sounds, nor odors, nor taste, nor contact of any, t- any kind, neither the desired nor the undesired, can cause such a one to waver. Steadfast is the mind, gained is deliverance. This is peace. This is exquisite. The resolution of all fabrications, the relinquishment of all acquisitions, the ending of craving, dispassion, cessation, nibbana. The Buddha does offer also some similes for nibbana. And some of these give a little bit of the flavor of some of it some of it is more in the, in this direction of what's been released, what's been let go of, that that it is a letting go and not a having of something. But this uh these similes can give the flavor too of the other side of how nibbana is described not as nothing but as the great happiness mahasukha sometimes nibbana is called the great happiness and so here are some similes from the Samyutta Nikaya. I'm just going to read the similes. It comes together almost like a poem to read the similes. The unfashioned, the end, the effluentless, the true, the beyond, the subtle, the very hard to see, the ageless, permanence, the undecaying, the featureless, non-differentiation, peace, the deathless, the exquisite, bliss, solace, the exhaustion of craving, the wonderful, the marvelous, the secure, security, nibbana, the unafflicted, 
the passionless, the pure release, non-attachment, the island, shelter, harbor, refuge, the ultimate. So these descriptions of Nibbana might seem almost irrelevant or hard to fathom. Some of them might even sound like, why would I want that? I'd like to point back to two things that inspire me personally, inspire me in what I read earlier. This is Nibbana, immediate, visible in this life. So this possibility of freedom, and his description earlier in that, experiences no mental pain and grief. Again, this, this, this description, the, the description of the absence of greed, aversion, delusion, to me brings in maybe just the flavor of the possibility. I can envision walking around in my life, potentially, not motivated by greed, aversion, and delusion. Having watched it a lot in my mind, see how it functions, seen little tastes of greed, aversion, and delusion ending, I can envision the possibility that it, this kind of freedom is visible in this very life. Visible in this life where I am driving a car and using a cell phone and talking to people and buying groceries. This possibility of freedom in this very life. And the description of no mental pain and grief, again, this is to me inspiring that possibility. It's not that this description of Nibbana says you'll be removed from the world. It leaves open the possibility for so many different expressions of what it means. This is something I love about this when I first heard about enlightenment. I thought it must be some big kablooey thing, you know, some major like mind-altering thing and not connected really. I envisioned it as something transcendent, not something in this life, in this world. And so this inspires me, this possibility, this description of 
the possibility of it's visible in this life. Freedom from greed, freedom from aversion, freedom from delusion. I like keeping it simple in that way. And I'd say in my own practice, most of the practice has unfolded in a really gradual way. Little tastes, little shifts, small releases. There have been a few, a few larger aha moments. But the Buddha describes the path largely as a gradual path, a gradual awakening. We may have sudden moments in there that reveal something or the mind shifts kind of quickly or, or sees something in a moment really differently and it's a kind of a, a breakthrough moment or a, a sense that something has been revealed that was not seen before. We have some of those. And some of those are described in the suttas of you know, the Buddha giving a Dharma talk and somebody becoming enlightened. I think Greg mentioned that the other day. But those poems that he read, you know, the poems of the nuns and a lot of the other descriptions in the suttas uh, are, you know, they're, they're kind of like, I've been practicing for 25 years. And I'm doing everything the teacher tells me. And yet still the mind is caught. It's a gradual process, often imperceptible. I talked about the the chopping wood analogy uh, a few weeks ago. That, you know, for chopping wood, we may not see the fibers of the wood weakening, but at some point there's a, a kind of a dramatic breaking of the wood. Well, the Buddha gives a more gentle analogy, actually. He talks about a rotting rope. He says, envisioning a shipwreck, he says, you know, the the rope, the rigging of the ship lies on the beach. And every day, the sun, the sand, the wind, the water, the waves wash over the beach, wear down the fibers of the rope. He said the wind, the sun, the, the waves, the sand, are like our mindfulness practice. Each day, if you go back to that beach and look at the rope and say, is it different today? It's not going to look any different day by day. It's a gradual process, a gradual wearing away. You don't notice the difference day to day, but a year later you come back, maybe try to pick up that rope and it falls apart in your hands. It has worn through, through that gradual process. That's a lot of what we're doing here. So often I find, and I definitely had this on retreat, and I'm hearing some of you report this in your meetings, the looking for something to prove I'm doing it right, waiting for some insight. I spent 
so many retreats waiting for that insight to prove I wasn't a failure. And at this point I understand it's just every moment of practice is just wearing away at the greed, aversion, and delusion. And I don't, I don't know when a release will happen. I don't have control over that. We don't have a say over when insight happens. But the process of the wearing away, the commitment to wise effort, wise mindfulness, wise concentration, leads to the conditions for that release. And so these gradual wearing away, and yet there are some kind of hints along the way, pointers along the way that help us to recognize these little shifts. They're not these big kablooey things. They're just little shifts of the mind saying, oh, oh, it's just anger. I can be with anger right now. We see these little shifts, little moments when greed, aversion, and delusion weaken or fall apart for just moments. We often don't tend to notice these moments, at least through our lives. They're subtle. That was one of the similes the Buddha offered. The very hard to see, the subtle, this moment of greed, aversion, and delusion falling away. We are attuned to watch things coming into being. We are attuned to watch the creation of things and not the falling apart of things. Buddha Dasa wrote in a little pamphlet called Nibbana for Everyone. He wanted to make Nibbana accessible to the people in his village. So he, he started just talking about Nibbana. He said, anyone can see if states of greed, aversion, and delusion were with us all day and all night, every second without ceasing, living beings must either die or become insane. Let us consider that we survive because there are moments when the fires of greed, aversion, and delusion are not burning. And so part of our training here in understanding the suffering is to begin to recognize these small moments, these little shifts. They're a pointer for us. They give us a taste, a tiny taste of that possibility of freedom in this very life. Uh, 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 Maybe the flavor of no mental pain or grief. I'd like to describe some of the ways I've noticed this. Wisdom at work, really... It's wisdom that does this for us. It's wisdom that frees the mind. It's wisdom that releases greed, aversion, and delusion. 
It's wisdom that releases craving. And we have all been cultivating wisdom here and you've all seen wisdom at work. It can operate in some very quiet ways. At one point when I was in Shui Umin practicing with Sayadaw Utejaniya, he said, notice when wisdom is at work. And I was confused by that instruction. It's like wisdom, you know. I thought of it as some like grand thing. Wisdom is a function in the mind that allows release. And so I began, that that was kind of like a koan for me. It's like it it began to be, it's like I held that in my mind. What does it mean to see wisdom at work? And as I began not trying to look for it, but just holding the question. And you know, this is, a, this is part of the practice um, with uh, Saira Utejaniya sometimes, just holding a question and then just doing your practice. You don't try to look for the answer, but somehow just holding the, pra- holding the question begins to orient the mind to recognize things in relationship to that question. And so I began to notice many ways wisdom was at work, And actually many ways I'd seen wisdom at work for years that I'd not noticed. Little moments. You will recognize some of these flavors that I'm going to describe. You are recognizing wisdom at work. Already you're recognizing wisdom at work. And this seeing wisdom at work is is a pointer to that release, a pointer to seeing those little moments of Nibbana, temporary Nibbana that Buddha Dasa, Buddha, Buddha Dasa called those moments temporary Nibbana. Not final Nibbana, not full Nibbana, not full release from delusion, but little tastes. So the first one that one of the first ones that we begin to see is just the recognition uh, that we can meet some experience like frustration or confusion. Oh, this is, this is just confusion. Just recognizing something as something that's arising in the moment. The pattern might continue, but the mind can know it. It's, this is a huge difference. This is, this is with the, the way wisdom's working here is it's kind of, instead of being, uh, our minds being caught into the, uh, the state, believing the state in a way, there's a separation, a little bit of a separation and understanding, an independence. Sometimes the, the term independent abiding is used in the Satipatthana Sutta. One abides independently. I think of it's that, that, that mindfulness can be independent of whatever it is mindful of. So our minds take a step back and are, are freed from being hooked by a pattern and can just watch the pattern. I think of this kind of wisdom as being akin to um, uh, putting a car into neutral. If a car's going 60 miles an hour down the freeway, 
and that momentum of that car being kind of like a pattern in the mind, like anger or aversion. One way to deal with that fast momentum, and maybe the safest thing to do on a freeway, if you discover that there's, you know, something wrong, isn't to slam on the brakes and have somebody plow into you from the rear, but maybe to put the car into neutral and gently steer yourself to the side of the road. You put, your, put the car into neutral and the car will come to a stop because you're no longer fueling it. You're no longer fueling the, the forward momentum. Very similar with this kind of mindfulness. Oh, this is just anger. It's like you've put the mind into neutral. It's not feeding the pattern anymore. The pattern will come to a stop. We can watch that momentum unwind in a way. Sometimes it takes a while. (laughs) So that's one way that we see wisdom at work. When we understand, we see that shift from being caught by something, believing it, kind of believing the story of of that pattern, believing the anger, believing, I have to fix this, I have to do something about this. Oh, wait a minute, I'm just sitting here. This is just anger. Huge difference in those two. Wisdom at work, right there, seeing that. Related to this is recognizing something's happening, something happening in our experience as just something happening in the present moment. We see a thought arising in the present moment and no, it's a thought arising in the present moment. We see a thought arising in the present moment and recognize that a response to that thought, an emotion, is also simply arising in the present moment. We might begin through this kind of um, recognition to begin to see, for instance, if we're having a reaction. We see somebody. We notice seeing. And then we see a reaction to that person we may be able to see that that reaction is related to something else that's arising in the present moment. A thought, a view, a belief in our minds. And seeing this at work. Recognizing that, well, the reaction has arisen, but understanding that it's not based in reality. It's based in a belief. It's based in an idea. So again, seeing just what's happening in the moment as something. A thought is just a thought that's happening in the present moment. We see past and future, not as past and future, but as a thought arising in the present moment about something that happened in the past. Or a thought about the present moment about something that might or might not happen in the future. We see this, we see experience. Seeing experience as something that's happening in the present moment. Wisdom is present to support us seeing that. And that wisdom being present often creates a sense of release, relaxation around a reaction, for instance. If we, if we see that a reaction is simply something arising in the present moment and doesn't have 
in this case, you know, it's like on retreat, sometimes we see somebody and we, um, we, we've got some story about them in our minds. The reaction, often, I've, I've had whole, like, you know, relationships unfold in my mind. A relationship where I fell in love with somebody and then met his brother and then, like, you know, fell in love with his brother, broke up with the person. It's like this whole huge story. My relationship to that person, I didn't, had never spoken to that person. <laughs> Seeing that, you know, seeing that happening and recognizing, oh, that relationship is a creation, a construction of the mind. Seeing that helps the, helps the mind to be more at ease around what's going on. So again, the, the wisdom at work creates kind of a container in which the experience is held with more ease. And that ease that peace around what is arising is a taste in the direction. The feeling in the heart of softening or relaxation often comes with that. Even as something is unfolding, even as a pattern is unfolding, Sometimes we witness or see the um, kind of conditioned nature of experience. We see how uh, we go outside on a cold day. We feel the cold wind, unpleasantness. Our mind creates the image of sitting inside with a warm cup of tea. And then, oh, it's, it's time to go get a cup of tea. We, we see the, the conditioned nature of this unfolding. We see how one thing conditions another and how the sense of self kind of picks up on some part of this process. In this case, picks up on the, uh, oh, being inside having a cup of tea, that sounds nice. We become that and then follow through on it, take birth into it. So we watch this arising and sometimes, sometimes we can just watch this arising, recognize the kind of the becoming around, ooh, having a nice cup of tea, feel that urge, see the urge as arising based on that image and recognize, wow, who's deciding to do this anyway? This is all a conditioned unfolding. So we see that, again, wisdom sees the not-self nature of experience there and recognizes how that Construction of a sense of self creates constriction, creates unease. 
So we begin to see our experience as a process. We begin to notice when we attribute an I to that process. And we do this with insights too. Something happens, something unfolds, and oh, I did that. I figured that out. Beginning to see how that creation of a sense of self constricts. And how the seeing of the natural unfolding creates more of a sense of ease. Seeing the conditioned nature of experience. Sometimes this um, wisdom at work, the release of something, happens in a more dramatic way. A quick release of some defilement, of some pattern of reactivity upon being seen. We, We may see it arising we may see the very beginnings of something putting itself together and in the, in the seeing of it, it like just vanishes. I remember the first time this happened to me where I recognized it, but I thought I'd done something wrong. I was, um, I was in the, the, the welcome room. It was a yoga room at that point. I was in that room doing some stretching and, and um, it was between the two halves of a three-month course. I was feeling abandoned by my part one teachers and was feeling pretty sorry for myself and uh, feeling, you know, a lot of loneliness and sadness and loss and grief and those kinds of things. And I was watching them. I was noticing them. I was kind of bringing compassion to them. I was practicing with, with these feelings. And at some point, I got a little more curious. It's like I was hanging out with it with the compassion. And, and I, uh, the, the mind, this, and I think in retrospect, so like I said, you know, I noticed that I'd seen wisdom a lot in retrospect as I began to understand what it looks like to see wisdom at work. Um, in retrospect, I see that what happened was that wisdom kind of got more interested in the emotion itself. It's like, huh, I wonder what this loneliness actually is. And it vanished. It wasn't like the car went into neutral. It was like the car disappeared. (laughs) And I was very confused. It's like, I had the belief, actually, that I was not very good at looking at emotions. And I had the belief somehow that I, I, I don't know, I made it go away because I repressed it or I don't know, something. And I, I went and talked to my new teacher, who was Carol Wilson, and uh, reported this to her. And, and I said, I described it and I said, and, and I, I'm, I, I, think, I think I led in by saying, I don't know how to observe emotions I don't know how to watch emotions because this is what happened. When I turned to look at it, it was gone. So help me learn how to watch emotions. She said, did it feel like there was anything lingering there? I said, no, it just felt like it was gone. She said, trust your experience. I was like, wow, trust my experience. 
So that kind of quick disappearance of something on really that the mindfulness just kind of comes close sometimes. Sometimes we have that quick disappearance. Now we can make the mistake of thinking, this happens a lot. Once we've had those kind of experiences, they're kind of like mind-blowing at times. Those quick, rapid disappearance of, of, uh, of a defilement. We might believe that it means when it doesn't disappear, when I turn my mindfulness to it, that I'm doing it wrong. We might believe that. But in my experience, sometimes the conditions are there for there to be a quick disappearance, and sometimes they're not. Sometimes our practice is putting the car into neutral. It's it's just those conditions at this moment. But that too, that quick disappearance of a defilement in that way, the mind is seeing something and releasing, it's just releasing. something it was holding on to. Sometimes we recognize wisdom at work because defilements are not arising. The Buddha actually encourages us to notice in the Satipatthana Sutta, he encourages us to notice the non-arising of greed. Encourages us to notice the absence when greed is not present. The, The instructions go something like, one, when greed is present in the mind, one notices greed is present. When greed is absent in the mind, one notices greed is absent. And so this is kind of attuning to recognizing that the defilements, certain of the defilements, are not there at the moment. And this is a really useful thing to explore, particularly around patterns or habits that are very entrenched, ones that we really identify with. Recognize when it's not happening. I thought I was a miserable person for much of my early adult life. And there were times I noticed that it wasn't there. This is before I started practicing. But, um, you know, I didn't... I noticed sometimes that, you know, I was happy and... And yet, when I noticed that I was happy, the mind didn't kind of take that in. It said something like, well, yeah, I'm happy now, but what I really know is that I'm miserable. You know, Kind of attributing a kind of an ongoing reality to the miserableness and not really taking in that in this moment, it was not there. 
And so noticing the non-arising of greed, aversion, and delusion. Sometimes this happens more in reflection, you know, more in recognizing, for instance, you know, a pattern that we might have um, a particular situation in which we might have been reactive in the past that is not happening right now. You know, gosh, I'm having this conversation with this person and I know habitually in the past I've gotten really charged about this, but it's not happening right now. Recognizing that that pattern is not arising. So sometimes it happens through simply recognizing that a pattern isn't being activated. It's almost through reflection. It's more, it's more of a recognition than a direct experience in a way. It's not really noticing the, the experience, so much the direct experience of the absence, but it's more like a reflection. Yeah, usually I'm reactive here. There are times when we can actually see kind of the, no, the non, or the, the kind of the mind moving in the direction of a defilement, and then seeing it's headed there, it, let, it lets go. In my exploration around anger, I don't think I've told this, this part of the story in, in my exploration around anger. At one point, having spent quite a bit of time noticing anger directly, noticing the um, experience of suffering that comes when we're angry, <laughs> yeah, noticing, wow, this hurts, it doesn't feel very good. Um, I got much more attuned to anger, got much more attuned to its arising, got much more, you know, of a sense of recognition that in a state of ease or peace right now. And then at one point I was, um, several, this was several months into my practice, so this, this actually, this insight actually happened. It was one of the pivotal, pivotal insights of my, of my um, whole meditation, my, my entire practice, this moment. It really, I would say it's the moment that I knew I'm going to do this forever. I'm going to do this as long as I live. This is really useful. So I was cutting an apple and just, I wasn't even trying to be mindful, but I was in my kitchen. I was cutting an apple and um, I noticed a thought arise in my mind about a person I was angry with. I recognized that there was a connection between what I was doing, cutting the apple, and the thought, because the thought was about being with the person I was angry with at a fruit stand. We were at a, you know, buying fruit in my memory. In my, and so I saw there was a connection. So seeing the conditioned nature in that moment of that thought, and also in that moment, this all unfolded in about a split second, also in that moment I saw the mind kind of reaching out like, oh yeah, let's get angry at that person. You're feeling the mind kind of headed in that direction, but knowing in that moment that I wasn't angry at that moment. I could see it was like the intention for anger. The mind headed there. Seeing that, the mind seeing that intention, 
And knowing where it was headed, which was suffering, the mind let it go. It was kind of like it would be if you reached out to touch a pot on the stove without a pot holder and your body just recoils from the heat. It's just the, the, the mind said, mm, not going to do that. <laughs> you know, I just, it, it just let go of itself. This was wisdom at work. Wisdom letting go of seeing. Boy, the mind's heading towards suffering. That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> that kind of thing happens occasionally, you know, when, when we are, are witnessing our experience. That was a, it was a profound moment for me, though it certainly was not the end of my anger. I will tell you that. It was not the end of years of looking at anger. But it gave me the sense of confidence of the power of the practice and the possibility for freedom, for wisdom to release. Actually, I stood there in the kitchen with my knife in my hand waiting to get angry because I hadn't had this person arise in my mind without anger arising. Within a few moments, it hadn't arisen. And in that moment, after a few more moments, something else arose, which was awe for the practice. Awe of the power of witnessing to free the mind. So these moments, they can bring confidence, trust. They help point us. They help us, they help us to recognize that we're on the path. They give us tastes of that freedom, small tastes of that freedom. They're a pointer. There's a difference between these moments of release and Nibbana, these moments of temporary Nibbana, these temporary releases. They probably still contain some layers of delusion. It's like we've broken through certain layers of delusion, freed the mind from certain layers of delusion, but deeper layers. I mean, in that moment of witnessing the non-arising of anger, I was still there. (laughs) You know, I was still... uh, I mean, I recognized that I hadn't done that, that it was a process, but I kind of took ownership of some of it. You know, some delusion. (laughs) Delusion was right there. And also, these small moments of freedom, we have to recognize and let go because these insights too are impermanent, conditioned. As I said, I spent years watching anger after that moment. That one insight allowed me to see the possibility gave me the confidence and the courage to keep witnessing it, keep watching it. 
And sometimes when we move into some of these uh, states of wisdom or insight, when the mind has moments of clarity or even slightly longer times where the mind is in a place of really just settling back and watching experience arise and pass away. And some of you have described this. It, you know, it's like it just seems so obvious. You know, how, how can I not see this? And yet, it's not that obvious. Because it doesn't take much for delusion to come back, for delusion to obscure that, what seemed so obvious. And yet, we now have a new perspective from which to see our experience. We can recognize, in this way, we can, we can begin to recognize delusion at work. Because seeing it gone, knowing the sense of something different, a different way of being, when our old patterns and habits come back, kind of a veil or a filter in front of our experience, something blocking us, obscuring our sense of knowing that clearly, we know that that obscuration is there now. We can begin to recognize, oh yeah, that's delusion at work. That's anger at work. Coming back to some of those other ways I mentioned wisdom can work. We can remind ourselves, yes, this is just a thought. This is just frustration. We've seen the possibility of the release from it. We can, the release from our filters, our distortions, we can more clearly know when they're working. They can't, it's like before we saw, we, before we saw it fall away, those distortions, it's like we don't know them. They're, they're, they're so close to our minds that it's like, the air we breathe, we don't really notice it's there. Or the fish swimming in water, not being aware of the water. It's like it's always there. So how can we know what it means to not be there? When we have those moments of freedom, we get a taste of what it's like for them not to be there. And then can much more easily recognize them at work. And so this practice has this spiral-like nature. We get little tastes sometimes slightly bigger tastes of freedom. It's not a mistake. It's not like you failed when delusion comes back. It's the momentum of our habits, our patterns. And yet, we can now see them more clearly. And so we just continue. Let's sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org.
www.ghostbusters.org slash donate.